The Daily Rios Digest, May 28, 2022. Mailbag Monday. Taking a look at two DCBS shipments that I've received in the past couple months, bringing me up to um, everything but the last week in May, I guess. Yeah, uh, that would make sense. Uh, so just, uh, you know, not much here. Again, very DC heavy. As I look at new things and new titles and realized how quickly they are getting onto the DC Universe uh site or app, um, definitely by the time I read them, it just doesn't make sense to buy them anymore. You know, if I'm going to read them on the app, might as well just let it fall onto the app, whatever schedule they decide to put it on. <laughs> uh, in these two shipments, let's see, I got uh, One Star Squadron number six, that brings that miniseries to an end, and then Jenny Zero, the second volume, number one, starting that miniseries Flashpoint Beyond Zero and One. It's always interesting when a company puts out, uh, it's not like this is an event comic. Um, certainly the first Flashpoint was, but this one is just uh, just a miniseries. I don't know. I don't know. There's There's got to be some kind of title for a miniseries spun off of an event, but it's not actually an event, you know, sort of like event adjacent. <laughs> but anyway, while this is going on, also Dark Crisis is building too. So you got these two, what I assume DC wants to, you know, to wants to um, put out into the forefront, these two titles, especially because Flashpoint is the whole reason why their universe changed, you know, all those many years ago, over 10 years ago. Uh, let's see, Alter Ego 175, back issue 134. I talked about them in a previous New Comics Wednesday segment. Alter Ego 175, taking a look at all of Roy Thomas's artists on All-Star Squadron. So I'm sure there's a bunch of um, information and some artwork that, that'll be fun to look at there. Wonder Woman Historian number two, this time with the artwork of Gene Ha, I managed to flip through it, and, um, you know, in some ways it's it's a thematic sequel artistically to what Phil Jimenez did in issue one, but it's not as detailed because the story doesn't demand all that information. So a lot of the Phil Jimenez stuff was hyper-detailed almost, a lot of small panels, a lot of visual information, whereas this one gets to breathe a little more. And yet it still has an otherworldly feel. It still has a, a mythic feel. It still has um, uh, a, a centuries gone by kind of feel, for lack of a better phrase. So uh, I probably will wait until we get the third one, which is artwork by Nicola Scott, before I dig into any of those. I got the Shadow War Zone uh, one-shot because one of the alt covers is an homage to Uncanny X-Men 141, where Wolverine and Kitty Pryde are standing against that wall of all the posters of the deceased X-Men or captured X-Men. So Shadow Warzone decided to do the same thing, I think by Howard Porter. Uh, and I'm a sucker 
for covers that, you know, are reflective of another cover. And I'm just like, yes, I got to get that. And then, of course, uh, Justice League 75, The Death of the Justice League, the final issue, and the Free Comic Book Day Zero issue for Dark Crisis. I am still hoping to do individual episodes on both of these chapters as a way to dig in deeper into what I read. Um, If I get a chance to catch up on all these digests, I should be able to do that. I read Justice League 75 so far. And I have to say, just, just to give some preliminary thoughts, I... It's fine. It's a it's a setup. It's an ending for that series, I imagine, but it's more a prologue to what is to come. Um, but I felt it was more flash than substance. Um, it was more to okay. So they're trying to evoke the death of Superman thirty years ago. And in that issue, Superman 75, right? Was it the 75th issue of Superman? Where he's battling Doomsday and it's all the splash pages. Even though it's bombastic and and trying to be um, sensationalist and trying to... It knows that it's going to have a, a bunch of new eyes on it, so it doesn't try to go deep. There's still a story in that Superman issue. And while there is a story here in the Justice League issue, I wanted it to be richer and and a little deeper and not as straightforward. It it, it feels like a like an animated movie just come to life. You're just reading dialogue, right? You're just reading dialogue and set up and um, you know, it's very linear, and if they are trying to evoke the original Crisis on Infinite Earths, it doesn't have that epic, mythic quality to it that Wolfman and Perez brought to the original. Um, you know, Wolfman was good at the purple prose, and Wolfman was good at, um, high drama and soap operas, and this one... You know, I don't know, just, I'm going to dig into it a little later, but it was fine, and the artwork is decent, um, and, I, and I'm and i certainly intrigued by what they're going to do, or what they're trying to do with a character like Pariah. Certainly it has a ton of echoes that triggers all of my Crisis Kid stuff, but in in the reading of it, after I read it, I was like, wow... I read that, not quickly, but I read it fairly easily. There's not a lot of, you know, if you think of how deep uh, Adam and I can dig into those crisis issues, uh, there's not a lot of that here, you know? It's it's not a lot to dig into. Okay, it, it is the first chapter. They're trying to get people onto it. You know, new people probably did jump on. I get it. I just want it to be a little richer. Now, the Dark Crisis special might do that. I just haven't read that yet, so we shall see. Okay, so there it is. Just a a few little standouts of of what I got in the past couple shipments, and I will continue to to do so in the future. Johnny Blaze. Yeah. Caught your show today. Just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed watching you ride. Oh, thanks. 
Perhaps you'd ride for me one day. You run a show? Greatest show on earth. Timeline Tuesday, finishing May, the anniversaries for May, as we go back 50 years ago to May of 1972. Before I do that, there is an addendum to uh, the last time I did a Timeline Tuesday for May, for 25 years ago. I was looking around and and, uh, came across this. May 16th, 1997. Todd McFarlane's Spawn, the animated series, begins on HBO, and it would run for 18 episodes over the next few years. So 25 years of that animated show that uh, I only saw maybe about the first seven, six, seven episodes, but I remember really liking it. I wonder how it would hold up to this day, 25 years later. All right, 50 years ago, May of 1972, we have Defenders Number 1 by Steve Englehart, Sal Buscema, and company, featuring Doctor Strange, Hulk, and Namor, at least on the cover. Uh, the Defenders finally gets their own series that would run for 152 issues. It would change to New Defenders with issue 125. This all was a team that had spun out of two stories, One of them being a team-up with the original roster against the Undying Ones in various issues and titles. And then they would come together in another crossover story where they would be referred to as the Titans 3. And then the first appearance of the Defenders was in Marvel Feature number 1. Now all of this was covered in a Timeline Tuesday episode for the Daily Rios episode 511, where you can hear me me and my guests talk about, um, or my guest, I should say, it was John Griggis, uh, where we talk about the, you know, how the Defenders came to be. But 50 years ago, May of 1972, they finally get their own series, Defenders number 1. I would start reading Defenders with new Defenders sometime after issue 125, where, you know, Moondragon and Warlock and Iceman, Angel, Beast, a character known as Cloud, and all of the stuff that led to, uh, I never quite finished it, but I know they were gearing up with to for like Moondragon to be the big bad, etc. The series, the Defender series, just like how it would have all kinds of characters coming in and out of the title, There would also be a lot of creator switches as well. And it's a franchise that lasts to this day. Uh, Later titles would be called Secret Defenders. There was a Defenders title that turned into The Order. There was something called The Last Defenders. There was a group of villains called The Offenders. And then there was something called The Fearless Defenders and other various versions of Defenders here and there, all the way through up to an upcoming miniseries called Defenders Beyond. And of course, there was the Netflix TV show as well. To kick off this segment, I played a little clip from Ghost Rider because 50 years ago, Marvel Spotlight number 5, the first appearance of the Spirit of Vengeance, Ghost Rider. Is he alive or dead? A legend is born. The most supernatural superhero of all. Those were all the taglines 
on that first cover. The character was created by Gary Friedrich, Roy Thomas, and Mike Plug. I will let those three hash out exactly who contributed what, because when you read up on Ghost Rider's creation, there's a lot of conflicting reports. Uh, this was the second Marvel character to hold the name after a Wild West character in 1966, who would eventually be known as the Phantom Rider. Ghost Rider would appear in seven issues of Marvel Spotlight before graduating, graduating into his own series in 1973, which would run to issue 81, uh, and it would end in early 1983. This was a character that was out of Marvel books by the time I started reading in the early 80s. Of course, there would be multiple titles that would follow. There would be multiple human hosts. There have been cartoons. There have been movies. There have been appearances on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I think in all of my comic book collecting, I purchased maybe two or three actual Ghost Rider comics, probably because they crossed over with the X-Men or something of, of that nature. I have not read a lot of Ghost Rider. From DC, Weird Mystery Tales number one is the first appearance of the character known as Destiny, created by Marv Wolfman and Bernie Wrightson. Uh, as a framing device, like all of DC's horror books, where they would have a host, and then that host would introduce various stories throughout the book. And that is what Destiny was. And then Destiny had a book that was chained to his wrist, and it was it will eventually be known as the Book of Souls, but it was originally known, and I did not know this, as the Cosmic Log. So I like the word cosmic, obviously log, that you know, cosmic log. Sounds kind of funny. Uh, as I said, it would eventually be changed to Book of Souls. I did not know that this was a character created by Marv Wolfman or Bernie Wrightson. Um, but I always liked when I saw this character pop up in a Superman issue or several times in New Teen Titans, certainly at, in the uh, history of the DC Universe, Books of Magic. Um, it was such a cool concept to me. Uh, one of those cosmic characters way beyond like the Spectre or Phantom Stranger or maybe along those same lines. But I always liked this character way before... Neil Gaiman absorbed him into the Endless. So that is the same destiny uh, that appears in Sandman as one of the Endless uh, that had his first appearance way back 50 years ago, Weird Mystery Tales number one. That title would run for 24 issues. One of my goals, one of my lofty, grand reading, great reading goals, is to read at least the first appearances of all of those hosts that eventually would make their way into Alan Moore's Swamp Thing and Neil Gaiman's Sandman, so I could be really familiar with them. Um, I have to assume that The Endless will make an appearance in the upcoming Sandman TV show. I'm trying to avoid everything about the Sandman TV show because uh, I, I read about 70% of, excuse me, I read about 30% of Sandman, and there's still about 70 more percent, 70 percent more of that title that I need to finish. I read like the first two trades worth, but prior to that, I, I actually started collecting Sandman with the kindly ones, which means I was reading the last few stories. And then I went back and read like the first two store, first two trades worth 
All the stuff in the middle I am unfamiliar with. But Destiny, yeah, one of my favorite um, cosmic beings for the DC Universe. Also from DC, Wanted, the world's most dangerous villains, number one. It would run for nine issues. This was a reprint series, but for villains, including characters like Signal Man, the Puppet Master, and Clock King in the first issue. And then later we would get the Joker, the Miss Captain Cold, Mr. Who, and others. And others. Not to be confused with Mark Millar and J.G. Jones's Wanted Story that was released through Top Cow in 2003. That one, according to Mark Millar, Mark Miller is, uh, was based on a pitch for DC, but for the Secret Society of Supervillains. Although, I have to imagine that Mark Miller was certainly familiar with a title known as Wanted over at DC. Back to Marvel, we have Fantastic Four 125 and Amazing Spider-Man 111. I'm pointing them out because Fantastic Four 125 is one of the last Marvel stories for Stan Lee to write before becoming becoming exclusively the publisher for Marvel. And with Amazing Spider-Man 111, which was the 10th anniversary for Spider-Man, Jerry Conway was now taking over as writer from Stan Lee. John Romita was on the art. It's an issue that features Craven and Gibbon. Um, but this was the issue, most people believe, um, that kicked off Marvel using the phrase of Stan Lee Presents. So not just if Stan Lee was writing the issue and it, it was a Stan Lee presenta presentation, but from here on out, even if Stan Lee wasn't writing... Stanley presents in the credit boxes. This is the first issue believed to be the first comic to do so. Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, number two, by Archie Goodwin, George Tuska, and company, is the first appearance of Claire Temple, the nurse that featured throughout Luke Cage's title, and also is the same character in the Netflix shows that is played by Rosario Dawson, although she is a mix of Claire Temple and the Night Nurse. Also for Marvel, War Warlock number 1, by Roy Thomas, Gil Kane, Thomas Sutton, and Sam Rosen, The Power of Warlock, in a story entitled The Day of the Prophet. So Adam Warlock finally gets his own series that would run for eight issues, and this segues right from um, his appearance in Marvel Premiere, and then he would show up in a couple of Hulk stories and Strange Tales and then come back to the Warlock title in 1975 with issues 9 through 15. Just a few more here for 50 years ago, May of 1972, Action Comics 414 features a character named Gregory Reed, who in the DC Universe is an actor who plays Superman in various entertainment within the DC universe and sometimes Superman will team up with him as a you know as a secondary figure so that he could confound and confuse whoever needed to be confounded and confused <laughs> so I, th I just thought that was funny reading that little tidbit Mr. Miracle number nine is the first appearance of Hyman and we have Richie Rich Diamonds number one another Richie Rich uh, title to go along with many of the other ones. I talked about this, I think, in one of the other previous Timeline Tuesdays. This title would run for 59 issues, ending in 1982. 
I did not find anything of note for 75 years ago, which would be May of 1947. However, I did see that on May 2nd of 1947, the creator of Wonder Woman, William Moulton Marston, had died at the age of 53. His final script was entitled Villainy Incorporated, and that would run in Wonder Woman 28, which would be released in January of 1948. Once William Marston had passed away, Robert Kaniger would take over and begin his lengthy run. So May 75 years ago, on May 2nd, 1947, the uh, passing of the creator of Wonder Woman. And that wraps up your May anniversaries. We will continue uh, throughout June, taking a look at June anniversaries and June comic history. New Comics Wednesday. New Comics Wednesday for the week of May 25th, starting off with Aftershock, a one-shot entitled Spectro by Juan Doe, who you might know as the artist on Dark Arc, and also Bad Reception and Animosity The Rise. I became familiar with Juan Doe's work on Dark Arc with Cullen Bunn, really just uh, was captivated by just the style and the color choices and uh, just how interesting the artwork looked like. So when I saw this one shot, I was like, okay, I have to give this a try. So it is a prestige format one shot with a quartet of horror tales. Spectro explores the unnerving spectrum of fear through four terrifying stories rooted in a cosmic game of twisted karma and phantasmagoric terror. The first story, what is at stake when sentient technology manipulates a man with projections of his desired self? Number two, what are the consequences of excommunicating a member of the nine planets? Number three, what is discovered when an explorer travels to Mars to ascend the tallest mountain in the solar system? And number four, what happens when a scientist aboard the International Space Station is confronted with the most horrifying aspects of humankind? $7.99. From Boom Studios, we have the Eat the Rich trade paperback by Sarah Gailey, Pius Bach, Becca Carey, Welcome to Crestfall Bluffs. With law school and her whole life ahead of her, Joey plans to spend the summer with her boyfriend Aster at his seemingly perfect family home. But beneath all the affluent perfection lies a dark, deadly rot, something all the locals live in quiet fear of. As summer lingers, Joey uncovers the macabre history of Crestfall Bluffs and the ruthlessness and secrecy lying in wait behind the idyllic lives of the 1%. Who can Joey save? Who wants to be save, saved? And can she even survive to tell the tale? This is collecting the five-issue miniseries for $19.99. I heard about this on the Boom Addiction podcast. Uh, it has a really interesting setup. 
and uh, a little bit of a twist of what you might think the story is as it goes on. And it talks about, uh, you know, kind of like the desperation people have and how will how far and how willing uh, they are willing to go and to sacrifice to do good for whatever it is they need to do for their family, etc. And just how far that takes um, that takes them. So, yeah, really interesting story. So give that a look. From SourcePoint Press, we have Ultramax Book 1, Doug Wood and Michael Picard, $3.99. A journeyman henchman has pulled off the impossible. He has killed the world's most famous superhero known as Red Hawk. In order to get a reduced jail time, the henchman has cut a deal with the feds. Problem is, even without having any powers, the feds are sending him to the Ultramax facility, with all the worst supervillains. Now this unlucky nobody must navigate prison life while praying no one finds out he is a snitch. I like that premise, and I liked some of the preview pages that I saw, um, and the cover stood out. It's, it's a cover with a wash of very hot colors, yellows and reds and oranges, and uh, caught my eye. So that right there was enough to... Uh, for me to give it a, a recommendation. From Vault Comics, we have Fox and Hair Number 1 by Jonathan Sui and Stacy Lee. When black market coder Aurora Yi uncovers top-secret data that has tapped into the past lives of the citizens of Mazu Bay, her world is turned upside down. The megacorporation Sinistry Designs wants its data back, and is hot on her trail. Aurora has no choice but to turn to the fox and the hare, the most feared mercenaries in the city, for protection. The creators wanted to reframe the themes of new technology, which is cyber, and rebellion, which is punk, through an Asian lens and tell a story that was character-driven and about love, justice, and rebirth. The protagonists of their story are rebelling against the status quo of their world just as much as they are, uh, just as much as the creators are rebelling against the status quo of the cyberpunk genre. They uh, took a look at what was going on with the cyberpunk genre and how a lot of Asian themes are appropriated, but it's not told through an Asian lens, and that is something they wanted to recapture with this. So this is a first issue for $4.99. And finally, from Fair Square, Classified Jager, Ibrahim Mustafa, $12.99. This is collecting the Eisner-nominated digital spy comic for the first time in print. Haunted by the torture he endured in a Nazi POW camp during World War II, French-Algerian spy Idris Morel is hell-bent on exacting revenge against his captors. Tasked by MI6 to hunt down escaped Nazi war criminals with falsified death certificates, with the official sanction of a government colleague, Morel embarks on a one-man espionage mission to ensure that the escapees are brought to justice. On his quest for revenge, Morel must find redemption or risk becoming like the very monsters he hunts. And those are your recommendations for the week of May 25th. 
bench is the dish best served called Sabertooth. I should have smelled you coming. You lost it, pal. Ten years ago, I never could have got this close. I can still handle punks like you. The Daily Reads Thursday. Continuing with all new, all different X-Men, part six. This is my read-through of classic X-Men from Giant Size X-Men onwards. I uh, have gotten through all of the Dave Cockrum stuff, and I'm about ready to jump into when John Byrne takes over. Um, but I'm, uh, I have a few tangents. The last time uh, that I talked about the X-Men, I talked about some issues outside of their regular title, where they would go to meet Spider-Man in Marvel Team-Up and also in Amazing Spider-Man. And with this segment, I am going to continue with some filler stuff that I have uh, been sitting on for a while. Uh, first up, uh, a look at Foom number 10 from July 1975, as provided by Mr. Ed Moore. And then also a look at Iron Fist issues 14 and 15 from 1975, as they feature the first appearance of Sabretooth and the all-new, all-different X-Men as well. So we start with Foom, Foom issue 10. This was released between X-Men 94 and X-Men 95, so super early in the whole giant size X-Men era. And uh, the first story is a prose story, and I, I'm not sure who wrote it. Uh, there didn't seem to be uh, a table of contents in the actual issue, and I neglected to look it up elsewhere. But it's a story mostly about Fred Duncan and how he has been receiving updates on the activities of the X-Men, from the original Fab Five to the new X-Men that is about to be released, at least in terms of this prose story. And he's been receiving these adventures from Professor Xavier. So it's kind of filling the gaps and giving readers a little bit of information on uh, the, the old established X-Men and what is going on with the new X-Men as well. And along the way, there are little side tangents with Robbie Robertson, J. Jonah Jameson, Judge Chalmers, um, members of the Canadian Project X, talking about how they're letting Wolverine go and how he was supposed to be Canada's Captain America. Uh, so it's a nice little status quo in between the two eras. Uh, they even mention that Beast is an Avenger at this point. And... Uh, one detail that I really liked was Fred Duncan is looking at some old files and he's looking at the descriptions of the original five X-Men as provided by someone named Stanley or Stan Lee. And it's basically, you know, the, the, the character's name, their superhero name, their age, what kind of powers they have for Professor X, Cyclops, Beast, etc. But what I really liked about the descriptions, Stan Lee gave them... Uh, gave their voices some kind of description. For instance, Xavier's voice is like Leslie Howard, but without the English accent. And Cyclops's voice is like Anthony Perkins. Uh, Beast is uh, Beast's voice is like Tony Randall, 
Angel sounds like a young Gene Barry. For Bobby, they just said typical teenager, but not too icky. And for Gene Gray, they said voice of a pretty 17 and a half year old gal. Uh, I like that. And I actually played some YouTube clips to try to hear what those actors and performers sounded like way back then. And honestly, most of them sounded similar to each other. The Xavier voice of Leslie Howard, if you get rid of the accent, has a little bit of a feel of what he sounds like in the animated series. Uh, the other note that I liked, they said about Cyclops that he's a present-day Hamlet. And I was like, wow, that, that comes with a lot of baggage. Uh, they mentioned about Jean Grey. She falls madly in love at the drop of a hat. Presently, she has a crush on Professor X, Cyclops, Angel, and Lord knows who else. Professor X? Really? Hmm. Beyond that, just an enjoyable prose story with not much else to it. There was a second article uh, where they talked about the X-Men as well. I didn't really pull too much info information from that. But they did refer to the X-Men as X-People and then said, as they are referred to in these days of women's liberation. And again, you have to remember this is the mid-70s. Uh, and then the issue has... Kirby's original drawing for the Sentinels and some fan drawings of the X-Men here and there and, and Dave Cockrum. Uh, so I'm really glad I read it because, you know, as far as fanzines go, this is right in the heart of when this new X-Men was starting. So it was, it was nice to pinpoint what was going on. Now with the Iron Fist issues, uh, basically, what I looked at here was how the collaboration between Claremont and Byrne is not exclusive to the X-Men title, as I think I guess I just assumed. You know, I, I look back on a lot of, like, historical reference whenever it comes to the Claremont and Byrne X-Men run and how successful it was and how influential it was, and I know that they had worked elsewhere outside of the title, but I don't think a lot of those retrospectives give much credence to their collaboration before the X-Men, and I think they really should. So as I was looking at all this, I was taking a little, you know, I was taking some research, and uh, Claremont and Byrne, um, they did the entire Iron Fist run from issues 1 through 15, starting in August of 1975 and ending in May of 1977. I don't know if this is their first collaboration. I didn't really dig that far into the research. Uh, but then they would also uh, pair up on Marvel Team-Up, starting with issue 59. That was April of 1977. Again, that's before they start their work on the X-Men. And they would run all the way up to issue 70 in March of 1978. And then they would have scattered issues on Marvel Team-Up, either together or by themselves with, with other creators, uh, after that initial run. And then Byrne would join the X-Men in September of 1977 with X-Men 108 and run all the way to, through to X-Men 143 in December of 1980. So their collaboration before the X-Men, um, they had a lot. The, you know, they were at least familiar with... Uh, the outcome of their collaboration. I don't know necessarily how deep they were working with each other while they were working on Iron Fist and Marvel Team-Up. I don't know if they enjoyed the same kind of collaboration, 
plotting stories or whatever, or if it was just simply Claremont was the writer and Byrne was the artist, you know. Um, but that's a lot of years and that's a lot of issues prior to their X-Men run. So certainly they could get used to each other and used to what they bring to a story and to to the to a comic, I should say. So then Iron Fist 14 is notable because it is the first appearance of Sabretooth, although in Iron Fist 13, in the little next issue blurb, there's a silhouette of Sabretooth, although it's it's you can't really call it more than just a tiny, tiny cameo. It's not the way of like, you know, the first appearance of Wolverine in in Hulk 180, I guess it is, or whatever it is, where everybody's like, no, that's not the first. It's just a small little cameo. But you still see the character on the last panel and you still see the costume. Unlike here in Iron Fist 13, where it is literally, it's just a silhouette of Sabretooth. So you can't really count that. So anyway, so Iron Fist 14, first appearance of Sabretooth. He's described by Colleen Wing as a freebooter, a modern-day pirate, and for the right price, he'll rip off anything. He calls Iron Fist Bub, so, you know, Claremont giving Sabretooth that word, just like Wolverine. Um, He has his senses. He says that he never loses. He says that it has been a long time since I tangled with anyone worth the effort as he battles Iron Fist. I thought, okay, that's a that you could kind of look at that as a, a subtle reference to how old he is, but it could also be a retroactive hint about his his um, on again, off again battles with Wolverine. And Iron Fist observes that Sabretooth is all power and speed. He has no combat technique. And they are fighting in Canada, I believe, and there's a whole bunch of snow, and Iron Fist gets snow blind. And there's some cool sequences there by Byrne to to feature all of that. Then we get to Iron Fist 15, which is the final run of the series, and really acts as a a primer for the X-Men. It's almost like, hey, our Iron Fist title is ending, but if you like Claremont and Byrne, why don't you go read X-Men, because uh, they're about to join that book. Now, when this issue was released... The X-Men title had not gone to Shi'ar Space just yet. So it's Iron Fist versus the X-Men because Iron Fist has gone to Misty Knight's apartment, an apartment that she shares with Jean Grey. That's information that we did know from the X-Men title. And Wolverine is also going there. There's going to be a party for the X-Men. And he senses Iron Fist and then decides to get into a rumble. But Wolverine is wearing the Fang costume that he would later acquire against uh, the when he goes up against Fang of the Imperial Guard. Um, but this issue comes out, you know, months prior to that issue, and it's it's very odd that we see Wolverine in this costume as drawn by John Byrne before we ever see it, before we ever see Wolverine wear it as drawn by Dave Cockrum. Very strange. So in this issue, you got Storm, Nightcrawler, Colossus, Jean Grey, Wolverine, uh, Cyclops. They're all going to have a party, as I say. And it really becomes like a comedy of errors because Iron Fist is trying to fight the X-Men. He's not doing so well because he's been weakened by a villain that has been sapping his strength on again and off again throughout these issues. 
And it's just kind of, like I said, it's an introduction of the X-Men so you can see what they can do. And then by the end, Phoenix comes in and she's got all the power, so she manages to stop everybody. There is a moment where Iron Fist wonders if there's some kind of connection between Wolverine and Sabretooth, saying that they have they they feel very similar, which is great. And you can see a lot of what Claremont is doing with the X-Men in their title in this issue. For instance, Iron Fist makes I mean, excuse me, Nightcrawler makes note that he's not going to use his image inducer anymore. Uh, Wolverine is crushing on Jean Grey at this point. There is a fastball special, even though it's not named. And it's a taste. It's a taste of the X-Men and what they can do and how they're drawn by Byrne before he'll draw them in the actual X-Men title. I really like these issues, and I especially like the Byrne artwork because it's it's not quite burn at his height just yet, but it's definitely along the way. For instance, when I talked about X-Men 108, which was uh, Burns' first X-Men issue, he does the final chapter of the Shi'ar saga. When I talked about that in one of the previous Daily Reads, I mentioned how Byrne was still... He was, he was very um, aware that he wanted to draw... Uh, in a feel of Dave Cockrum. You know, whether that was intentional or not, it certainly felt that way. But then you look at X-Men 109 or you look at these Iron Fist issues and it's way more burn. The panels are far more open. The anatomy feels the same, like what I'm familiar with burn. And, and you know, with X-Men 109, which is the next X-Men issue that I'm going to read, um, it's, it's burn. It feels more like burn than Cockrum. So, uh, I'm looking forward to reading those. And I was glad I read these just to kind of kind of get a sense of Claremont and Byrne before Claremont and Byrne, you know, before they really make a name for themselves on the X-Men. So I will continue my look through the X-Men uh, in the future. The Road to Danger Street, Part 13, taking a look at the final issue of First Issue Special, Number 13, featuring the return of the New Gods. They're back. Orion, Big Barda, Mr. Miracle, Metron, Darkseid. Uh, looking more like superheroes on the covers than anything that they looked like during the Kirby era. Um... So this is the final issue for First Issue Special. It is the return of the New Gods. They had been away from comics for about two years, which is when Kirby wrapped up Mr. Miracle, which was the last of the fourth world titles that he was working on and the one that lasted the longest. Now, he is working on Commandy around this time of this 13 issue, but he was he would soon be uh, on his way out of that title as well. New Gods ended with issue 11 in 1972. Um, 
that would then be restarted because of this tale, or at least partially because of this story. It would restart in April of 1977 with issue 12 and then would go up to issue 19. So even though this story, which came out in um, early 1976, it would take a while until the series would come out again in April of 77. So this issue is by Jerry Conway, dialogue by Denny O'Neill, art by Mike Vosberg. It's not the greatest issue to end on <laughs> for the first issue special. I mean, most of the series, you know, has been up and down. There have been stories that I liked. There's been some that I haven't liked. Um, and m some of the stories handled the whole first issue special premise better than others. This one does not necessarily handle it too well because, again, it's making reference to stuff that came before, even if it is a new starting point. One of the biggest things that happens in this issue is everybody keeps talking about how there was um, a momentary peace between New Genesis and Apocalypse and how um, that peace is now being disrupted. So the story is Orion heading to Earth. Orion is now in a costume where he looks more like a superhero more than anything else. In the text page, they talk about how they wanted to give him a costume that felt like it was in the middle of New Genesis and Apocalypse, but I'm not sure that's really successful. It says here on the first page, now it begins anew. Now the truce is broken and the clash between the peace-loving denizens of New Genesis and the destruction-loving forces of Apocalypse will rage again, a struggle the new gods cannot win and yet must not lose. So Orion's back on Earth. He's fighting Calabac. Apparently, Orion is looking for Darkseid. And we get a flashback, uh, which is kind of like a setup for all the characters that are in this story, you know, High Father and Metron and some other ones. And um, Orion goes to Apocalypse where he finds out that uh, Darkseid is planning to invade Earth again. I'm not entirely sure if Metron's role in this story is consistent with how he's used during the Kirby era because he seems very squarely on the side of the New Gods or New Genesis. Um, and to the point where he feels way too heroic as opposed to some kind of like intermediary. Along the way, the source decides to reveal itself on the wall of prophecy and says, when son slays father, chaos reigns. And we find out that Darkseid has uh, attached or connected his heartbeat to Earth's son, so if Orion kills Darkseid, that is going to destroy the sun as well. More fights happen. More Orion versus Calabac. They wind up back on Apocalypse. We see Granny Goodness. Uh, the truth comes out about Darkseid's plan. So Orion can't really kill him, but he acts almost as if he doesn't want to kill him. And I wondered if that was a Kirby thing as well, where Orion is... Uh, not always sure that he wants to kill his father, and and Darkseid recognizes that. And I was like, hmm, I don't know. You know, Orion suffering guilt, is that a thing? I don't know. I haven't really read a lot of those Jack Kirby Fourth World stories, so I, in, in a lot of cases, I don't know how this story adds up. Although, 
I will talk about some stuff in the text page that'll give a, a little more light to that. And then at the end, Darkseid says, oh, you know, Orion disrupted all my plans, so I got to start all over again. And I'm thinking, really? Did he really disrupt your plans? I mean, all he did was fight Calabac on Earth and came to Ap Apocalypse and you fought him there. But how much did he damage did he really do? It's very strange. And then it ends with Metron kind of consoling Orion and saying, look, New Genesis is happy. The people here have been defended once again against Darkseid. They will thrive, but the war is never at an end. And I was like, okay, hmm, I guess, I guess that's a wrap-up. So um, it's okay, as I said, the artwork's okay, the story's okay. Jerry Conway is free to admit um, within the Back Issue magazine article in issue 71 about First Issue Special, where he says, I was not the right person for um, this story. You know, he never felt right with the return of the characters, he didn't quite have the Kirby, um, you know, bombastic nature for the characters. Certainly, the artwork doesn't play out to that. The text page in this issue has a super, super brief account of what the New Gods were up to by this point. And at the end, as always, it asks the readers if they want more New Gods tales that they have to write in. Now, obviously, as I mentioned, they would get a return to their series, and then they were there would be a number of titles um, where the New Gods would return, whether it was Jack Kirby returning for the Hunger Games or the New Gods series that was in the late 80s. There was a New Gods series. There was a Mr. Miracle series. There was a Forever People miniseries. Of course, then in the 90s, you would have uh, John Burns take on the run. You would have Walt Simonson on Orion. Um, and people, who, whoever it was that started uh, the New Gods before Byrne took over, was it, I can't remember if it was Rachel Pollock and, and Luke Ross and some other creators. And, you know, DC has messed with them here, here and there. Um, all the way up to whatever they're going to do, whatever Tom King is going to do with Danger Street. And is Danger Street going to have any connection to the Mr. Miracle series that he did with Mitch Gerrards? Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see. In terms of the New Gods with Danger Street, it is dark side that some of the main characters of First Issue, first issue Special uh, have decided to go after as a way to prove themselves to the Justice League. So I have to imagine we're going to see a lot more of the new gods. One of the other takeaways of the actual story itself, not necessarily related to Danger Street, but related to Dark Crisis, is something that Darkseid says at the end of the story, where he says, okay, eventually I shall triumph. This I swear by the darkness I hold holy. I swear. I was like, oh, by the darkness. Again, I don't know if Kirby uses a lot of uses that word or in that context. I know I know it was mostly about the anti-life equation. So this whole thing about I swear by the darkness, I hold holy. If you think about the backstory for Dark Crisis in terms of the big bad, that little turn of phrase. Uh, you know, could be seen as evidence to back up what is going on. But again, this is kind of a, a generic one-off story, so I don't know if anybody paid attention to it. But it is there, and I do like that. The darkness I hold holy.
holy. In the text page as well, uh, they talk about how uh, there were many new characters originally planned for the next few issues of First Issue Special, but that they are going directly into their own magazines and others will be premiering in some of our 50 Cent Giant titles. And they mentioned three, Mr. Miracle, a new series by Martin Pasco, Rick Estrada, Joe Staten, editor Joe Orlando. However, that's not true. Now, while there will be a Mr. Miracle series that starts in June of 1977, more than a year later, uh, it would begin with issue 19. It would run through issue 25. That first issue wound up being by Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers and company. I do not know why that creative team changed. Or maybe one was one creative team, the Martin Pasco, Rick Estrada team, was for the first issue special. And then eventually when they moved over to a series, it was by somebody else. Then they also mentioned Starfire, a new sword and sorcery series with Mike Vosberg that would run for eight issues starting in May of 1976 by Dave, uh, David Michelini and Mike Vosberg. Um, I'm not sure if what they're saying is that Starfire was going to get a tryout in First Issue Special, or is it because Mike Vosberg had worked on a bunch of issues of First Issue Special, so they're just kind of giving a nod to something he's going to work on later. I don't know. I tried to come up with some more research and couldn't find anything. Um... Because the third one, they said, is Secret Society of Supervillains, number one. And they say, which might feature another favorite from our cast. Now, did they mean Darkseid? Did they mean the Creeper who makes an appearance or two? Did they mean Manhunter? But it's not really the same Manhunter that we saw in first issue special. It's another Manhunter. Um, did they mean any of the creative teams? I don't know. So... I don't know how much credence I can give to I mean, it's in the text page. They're saying the title is ending. They're saying that these things were going to show up. Whether it was true or they just, you know, there's a difference of having a list of like possibilities versus um, stories that they were actually working on. Two stories that I know for sure were supposed to be in First Issue Special, I will talk about next time. A Batgirl and Robin team-up, which was the lead story in Batman Family number 1. And a Green Arrow Black Canary story that was kept in inventory until it was published as a backup feature in Green Lantern 100. That issue I actually own. I own a physical copy of that, so I'll be able to read that. So we will get one more Road to Danger Street special segment uh, next week where I will take a look at those two uh, missing stories. And if you have any feedback or anything you want to talk about about First Issue Special or any of the segments about The Daily Rios, you can do so, peter at thedailyrios.com, or leave a comment on the website, thedailyrios.com, or visit the Daily Rios Instagram, my Twitter, Peter J. Rios, um... Please, by all means, if you have a podcast catcher, go rate me some stars there. Uh, let me know if I'm if I need to be included on your favorite podcast catcher. This has been the Daily Rios episode five sixty two, the forty seventh digest for Saturday, May twenty eighth, twenty twenty two. Talk to you soon. <laughs>